Hello, David Oakes here and welcome to another episode of Trees A Crowd. Over the last two years of episodes, we've focused on our woodlands, marine life and indeed the history of humankind's relationship with nature. But there is one thing that I have until now not been suitably placed to discuss and that is the world of land-dwelling megafauna, big animals. So for the next couple of episodes, we're going to delve into our planet's larger land inhabitants uh, to explore the lives of elephants, of lions and tigers, and of the people trying to keep these species alive in the wild in our modern world. Today's episode is with Will Travers OBE, the president and co-founder of the Born Free Foundation, an organisation which, in their own words, is set up to work tirelessly to ensure that all wild animals, whether living in captivity or in the wild, are treated with compassion and respect and are able to live their lives according to their needs. Somewhat appropriately, I spoke to Will a fortnight ago whilst I was in Ireland in a 14-day period of quarantine about Born Free and about their new video campaign. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Born Free have a wonderful new video and uh, campaign alongside it called Creature Discomforts which ties into what I think Born Free's original agenda was when it started up as Zoo Check back in 84. So I was wondering what you could, if you could tell me what the campaign is, what Creature Discomforts is, and why it's looking back at the whole animals in captivity thing in general at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And I, I wonder if, if people listening to this will remember the original Creature Comforts, which was made by Ardman in the late 1980s. I mean, I was a big fan. My mm -hmm. family was a big fan. It was, I think, their first Academy Award-winning uh, animation that they did. It was absolutely fantastic. They and won an Ardman Oscar for it. Yeah, and they went on to make, uh, as you know, Sean, uh, Sean, Sean the, the Sheep, Sheep and Wallace and, and Gromit. And... Wallace and Gromit and all of those things. Um, and we got into conversation with them about the, the whole sort of notion of the temporary lockdown experience that many of us have had to endure, mm -hmm. what that does to us, um, how it affects us, but then translating that into the lifetime lockdown. So actually it's called Creature Dis Discomforts, Life in Lockdown, mm -hmm. that so many wild animals, and we're talking millions of wild animals, face in captivity, whether it's in circuses or zoos or, or as exotic pets or whatever. And I think that we realized that there was a, a great deal of resonance and certainly the feedback that we've had, which has just been absolutely extraordinary. You know, th thousands of comments and we've had 330,000 views on Twitter. And it's only we've been out had, about a week or so now, isn't it? It's only been out a week. We've yeah. had about a hundred and something thousand on Instagram. And it just, it just obviously has touched a nerve and has caused people just to pause for a minute and to think about their own experience and then what that might mean for intelligent non-human life that we lock up for probably no, not much more than our own predilection and entertainment sure uh, you know it, i think it's got a lot more to run mm -hmm. i think that it's uh, we're hoping to, to get it out into possibly the cinema circuit we're hoping that it will get picked up i mean it's already been retweeted by uh, people like miranda hart sure. who you know, and I, I take that as a huge compliment because as a an incredibly talented actress and comedic actress uh -huh. and comedian and writer, 
she gets the humor behind what is an incredibly serious and difficult situation. And we must never forget the fact that it's not, this isn't trivial mm-hmm. stuff. For, you... for human beings, we, we're talking of 15 million cases worldwide. We're talking of 600 and something thousand people who've lost their lives. And this very sort of patchwork mm-hmm. response from our elected representatives, wherever they have to be, some good, some Less not good. so good, and some downright miserable. <laughs> Do you find it upsetting that you feel that humans have to have something put into a language they understand before they're prepared to think about the plight of another species? I think it sometimes works and, and sometimes it's actually not necessary. Um, when we started out as Zuchek in 1984, one of the very first things we did was to explore the psychological suffering of animals in zoos because uh, I think people could see a bad zoo and they're the, the way that they judged it being bad was the physical conditions that the animals were kept in. Mm-hmm. But we were looking beyond that. Not only that, we were looking at the psychological situation, uh, the behavior patterns that manifest themselves in animals that have become institutionalized. And uh, it's called stereotypies. And we not only did we we're look talking at that, about animals we, roaming around their cages and their behavior. That's changed, right. So it's the repetitive pacing. It's the circling. It's the compulsive plucking of feathers or hair. It's uh, hyper-aggressive behavior, hyper-sexual behavior, uh, rocking and swaying behavior. You'll see that a lot in um, elephants and and bears and pacing in the big cats. People will even um, see it in their own pets if their pets are understimulated at home. You'll often see a dog scratching a same spot on its back or just pacing around the room. And, and that's really the point. We were able to take these, this behavior in zoos where the the animal behavior was being described by visitors to the zoo as isn't that funny mm-hmm. and translate it not just into distressed behavior, distressed psychological behavior in our companion animals, as you say, dogs and cats, but also in human beings. We had the head of clinical psychology for one of the for the east of England at the time came to us, looked at the report and he said, but I see exactly that behavior in human beings who've who've become institutionalized, who suffered mental trauma. And what they do is they effectively effectively retreat into their own world in order to block out the world that they find so distressing and to use some of our footage as a way of beginning to talk about these very difficult issues with patients and other clinicians. Let's let's take us back back a bit further before Zuchek existed. Um, Most people probably didn't know there was something else people know of Born Free, probably because of the film. But just for those that don't know how Born Free came about, your mother and your father back in 1963, I think it was, made an Oscar-winning movie based upon the experiences of uh, Joy and George Adamson. Now, am I right in thinking that you were out there with them at the time that the film was made? So now, you see, you've done it. You've given away my age. Um, it was actually 1964. <laughs> okay, and so I was I made five. you older. <laughs> okay. I was five. So, um, yes, uh, my sister and my very young brother, um, and then there's another brother that came along after the film, went out in 64. Um, we stayed for nearly a year mm-hmm. uh, in Kenya to the north near Mount Kenya itself, a town called um, near Nanyuki, a little village called Naramoro. And... It was an extraordinary experience for all of us, for my mum and dad working with particularly George Adamson and over 20 lions that were used in the making of the film, the telling of the story of Elsa. And these are wild creatures or they were? They were, well, this is a good point. They're all wild creatures. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the thing. There is no such thing as a tame lion. 
there is a lion that you have habituated, but there is no such thing as a tame lion. And that's why you see people who've worked with big cats in captivity, for example, uh, suddenly come unstuck. There was the case of Siegfried and Roy, yeah. the uh, entertainers in Las Vegas, and they famous for using tigers in their um, show. And then the tiger turns and people go, well, why does that happen? Someone in America who was keeping a chimpanzee as a pet, mm -hmm. uh, fully grown, 160 pound male chimpanzee, and is surprised, shocked, horrified when that chimpanzee turns on her friend and destroys that friend. I mean, doesn't kill her, but literally removes her face. It's the most dreadful thing. Uh, and then the chimpanzee retreats, having been shot by uh, local uh, state troopers and dies in her bed. Uh -huh. Now, we have distorted and warped the relationship. I'm going to come back to zoos. We've distorted and warped that relationship that is the, as it were, natural relationship where animals have, wild animals should have a fear of human beings. Sure. We are the biggest enemy to wildlife on the planet. And they know that except when we distort it and we create this illusion of being able to get up close and personal and then tragedies happen like you know steve Irwin, yeah you know famous for getting up close and personal and then a stingray plunges a, a its barb through his heart and he pulls it out and he dies mm -hmm. and people go well i don't understand why that happened and you know honestly it's a fairly simple truth they're still wild animals. that is not the natural relationship you have with a tiger a lion an elephant a stingray Riding elephants is, is is not what we should be doing. I think that's one of the things that the film still does well, even looking back in it as I did yesterday. My preparation was watching Born Free again as it is as a child. Um, was It doesn't shy away. I mean, you get, the, you get the young lionesses playing, but then you also get one of the brutal opening shots that sticks with me from watching it as a child was that shot of a lion devouring a zebra. And you see it pulling at the flesh and you see the blood everywhere. And you've got a film that treads that fine line of anthropomorphizing a lion and turning them into a molly-coddled baby in a way that they sort of did. But I think, it, I think it balances it well enough that it doesn't say that this is the right thing to do. The message holds clear that these are wild creatures, that they mm. deserve our respect primarily. Yeah, and I mean, you only have to look towards the end of the film where Elsa is going back to the wild mm -hmm. and there is a territorial fight between two lionesses on a rocky outcrop with a male a lion watching on. And the raw power of that is quite unbelievable. It's I mean, it, it, how they actually you know, filmed it is almost beyond me, except I, I do know that that, that rock was a, a piece of territory that on alternate days, each lioness claimed rights to. So that when eventually the director put the, uh, two, the lines two lionesses together. on the rock at the same time. They had a a, a real ding-dong, a real fight for, uh, for for territorial rights. And I think that this is the point. These are wild animals. Uh -huh. There are 10,000 zoos around the world. There are millions of animals kept in there for little more than our pleasure. And it distracts us massively from the real front line, which is conservation in the wild. If we don't fight that battle, mm -hmm. then I've always said we will end up with zoos and zoos will be a sort of painful reminder of what we lost, not a glorification, not a celebration of life on earth, but almost a sort of uh, requiem for life on earth. Do you think one of the reasons why you're so committed to this cause is because you had the benefit of living out in Kenya when you were a child and that you grew up 
with a first-hand experience of a wild environment and wild animals. I know I was enormously lucky, and I know that that is not an experience that many people can ever share. But I also know that we have, as a society, rejected, for example, the hunting and killing of great whales to turn into pet food, to turn into soap products, which is what they were used for, to turn into perfume base. Mm -hmm. That's not because we've all gone and seen a great whale. That's because we have empathized, we've understood that great whales belong in the ocean, that they are a hugely intelligent form of life, and that killing them for dog food and soap is completely un- in, a, in a way that is, has lasting suffering and cruelty built in, is completely unacceptable. It's a little bit, a bit, bit like the trophy hunting industry now, or even worse, the canned hunting industry. I was going industry. to get onto that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's I mean, talk, let's talk about canned hunting. For those that don't understand it, it's people raising. Often it's twofold. They use the cubs as like a tourist attraction, so you can stroke a lion cub or a tiger cub or whatever. And then when they get older, they get shoved into a zoo, or worse still, get put out in a reserve to be shot for money by game tourists. Yeah, I mean it's it's sort of almost even worse than that because the cubs are bred in this facility. Uh, it's a lion farm. There are around 300 of them in South Africa. Mm-hmm. There's something in the order of 10 to 12,000 lions in these captive facilities in South Africa. I read there was double the number of lions in captivity in South Africa than there were in the, in the wild. Yeah, more than double. Wow. M- more, than, more like three or four times the number of wild lions in South Africa in these captive facilities. And the And the cubs are then taken away from the mother at a very early age. We're talking just a few days. They're then described as orphans and uh, volunteers, but who pay, mm-hmm. come to look after. And I think, you know, they're sort of innocent victims of this. They're ex- exploited along with the animals. They come and for several months look after, have them in their bed, get up, you know, every four hours, bottle feed, all those kind of things. Then when the, when the cub gets a bit too big for that, they are put into what's called the walking with program. So you... Other tourists come and for $50, $60, they can spend an hour walking with an adolescent lion. When they're too old for that, that's when they're entered into the canned hunting process, which is, you say a reserve, it's, it is a, a confined space. It may seem big, it may be 100 acres, it may be 200 acres, but it's still a space from which they cannot escape, mm-hmm. which is why these facilities can offer things like a no-kill, no-fee policy. If you don't shoot your lion, you don't have to pay. Well, the answer is the lion's got no chance. It can never escape. Uh-huh. So it is a 100% guaranteed discount kill. And as I say, there's hundreds and hundreds of lions that that applies to in South Africa every single year. And then the final bit of the story is that the trophy hunter takes the, you know, the trophy home, the head or even the skin back to where they came from. And what's left is the, 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 the carcass. And South Africa has approved, legally approved, an 800 carcass export permit for those 800 bodies to be shipped out of South Africa to Far Eastern markets where lion products are now taking the place of tiger products in traditional Asian medicine. Exploited, you know, that old thing from cradle to grave, Mm -hmm. this is it. They are exploited from cradle to grave. I literally didn't know about that final step. That's that's abhorrent that it's legalized. One of the questions I was going to ask was, what's the greatest threat to big cats, I guess, living in South Africa at the moment? Is it 
Is it hunting? Is it poaching? Is it farmers and their land stock trying to preserve their livelihoods? I mean, I've got an inkling that you might be saying that they're all vastly interconnected. They are. And just before we leave the the canned hunting thing, if uh, anyone wants to, you, you've kindly mentioned the animation that we've done about um, creature discomforts and life in lockdown. Mm-hmm. We did another one called The Bitter Bond, uh, which is also on the Born Free website. And that's an animation. We were very lucky to get the, the song, the original song, Born Free, permission to use that mm-hmm. in our two minute animation. So that's worth a look. No. So threats to lions. You're right. There's a raft of different threats to lions. They are often interconnected. So it's um, habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, diminishing prey base. So the natural prey is being removed. So lions to survive turn to livestock and then you have revenge killings. You have poisoning. Um, You also then also have trophy hunting and you have poaching. And I think it'd be difficult to rank them and say this is the most important. But I think from Born Free's perspective, we always focus on the individual. So the individual suffering and cruelty that's meted out to wild animals, whether they're lions or not, as part of of a whole trophy hunting, canned hunting industry is abhorrent to us. But the big picture is that we have to find a way, and now is a good time to be talking about it, a find a way of financing the protection of nature. Sure. Because if we allow human the human footprint to expand in the way that it is and in an unregulated fashion, then the land that wild animals need to live on, and we are talking about only a fraction of, of land now, even that will be broken up, turned into temporary farming because it's often very unsuitable for agricultural practices the wildlife will be lost on which for example in kenya right now there's no tourism there but last year they had nearly two million tourists and it raised nearly 12 percent of their gdp and a million people are employed looking after those tourists if that disappears permanently people will suffer and they're suffering because we're not taking care of the wildlife Have you spent much time on the ground personally yourself out there with the organizations that you're working with? What kind of things have you seen going on personally with your own eyes? Oh, I've been out um, many times. And actually, it's a good point. I'm I'm really consciously planning not to go out very much because I I realize that we've all been talking about um, not going back to business as usual. But we it's hard to nail what that really means. What do we mean by that? the we new sort of normal is the phrase it. that keeps getting yeah, thrown around. It's at like, the well, well, I'm not going back to business as usual, yeah. but I'm still going to go to, you know, my holiday home three times a year and I'm going to get a couple of long hauls and I'm going to that really important business meeting in New York where I'm going to have 10 minutes mm-hmm. to say what I have to say. And now we're all doing this. You know, the United Nations is using platforms like Zoom and others to carry out its business. And I've been talking to some of the UN leaders who are reconsidering how to hold major conferences. Uh, using tech rather than having 2,000 people fly in for two weeks to a city mm-hmm. and with all the pollution and uh, and waste that goes with it and the waste of money too, money that we could be spending on other things. But I have been out to the field many times, seen some of the species that we work hard to protect and support, such as the Ethiopian wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people know that there is a there is a wolf in Africa it's not the wild There's dog. There's fewer than 500 or something. Am I right in There's saying that? There's only 500. That? There's only 500, David. And, 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 you know, we talk about the 
giant panda mm -hmm. and we all get terribly sort of excited about that and yet um, there are probably 2,000 giant pandas and they benefit from probably tens of millions of dollars a year of support for their habitat for the breeding program in Wulong and the rest of it however we have the Ethiopian wolf magnificent looking animal is that habitat loss or are they being taken for their furs what's going on with them no it's um so they're very they're a niche they're a specialist they only live above 10,000 feet above sea level, so 3,000 meters. They're only found in Ethiopia. There are none in captivity. And the biggest threat to them is rabies, rabies oh, wow. that comes from dogs in local communities that live around the protected area and sometimes in the protected area. They meet a wolf, they pass on rabies, and if you get a bad outbreak, you can lose between 25 and 30% of the world population in two months. Sure. So Tragic. it's a challenge, and and yeah. and yet that program survives on a few hundred thousand dollars a year. It's sort of this imbalance, I think, that we we don't recognise, and we we don't know how to invest in nature in the right way. I think also a lot of people see it as a a distant issue. It's something far away in tropical climes, or in deserts, or in on Saharan plains and the like. But the truth is that in terms of animal rights and animal cruelty, um, on our own doorstep. It's only one month ago that Scotland finally banned the shooting of seals and mountain hares. Yeah. Um, in Wales, from this December, we're finally banning wild animals and circuses. And in England, the 2018 uh, ivory sales ban might come into action, although it's in law, it's not in action yet, because it's been held up in the laws by ivory salesmen who were worried about them having their human rights violated. Yeah, I mean, it's gone to the European Court of Human Rights because they their livelihoods are being taken away. It's a... Uh, you know, with due respect to them, it's an absolute nonsense. And I've argued that with them before. There's, I think the number of people in the UK that make their living exclusively from the sale of antique ivory artifacts is like three. If it keeps going like that, there'll only be three elephants left as well. So <laughs> um, well, we have to, we do have to do absolutely have to fight that. Um, how do people fight? I mean, there's, there was something that Jane Goodall said the other day about Prince William and Prince Harry, who are wonderful champions of the natural world, she said, except that they hunt and shoot. I mean, how, how strong a divide do we have to make it? Do our actions have to be wholly sacrosanct and pure? Or, is, or can we live a muddy ground where we still do one thing but say the other? Well, I find it very hard to accept that, um, you know, hunt, shooting for fun is an acceptable human pastime. And I differentiate that from hunting for survival. There are people in Africa right now who, because of the downturn in the tourist industry, the fact that the lodges are closed and they're being sent home to their villages, inevitably are turning to subsistence hunting in order to survive mm -hmm. because they have no job, they have no income, and there is no safety net. You know, Nigeria, just by example, spends less than $40 per annum on healthcare per person. So that gives you a sense of how fragile the social security, the, the sort of safety net is uh, for people who fall on hard times in, in many, many countries. And we're enormously sort of lucky here that it's uh, nothing like that. So I guess but, the temptation uh, think... then to, to take out a leopard for its skin, for example, would be hugely tempting. It's a social it problem. Be. It's a community problem it needs to be. It, it would be illegal um, there, you know, in, in many countries, um, you would have to take out a permit in order to legally hunt a leopard. And there are half a dozen countries in Africa where it is still legal to hunt leopards. But I think that going back to your point, I think that I don't think it's possible to be completely 
purist about everything simply because uh, what I want is people to engage. Mm -hmm. I want them to be on the journey. Uh, the people I really don't have time for are the people who are not prepared to engage, who will not get on the train and will not be part of this adventure in human thinking as much as anything else that we're on. The best example I can give you of a real change was George Adamson himself. When he was a young man in Nairobi with his brother Terence, they used to sell milk mm -hmm. uh, off the back of a bullock wagon, and they used to shoot elephants for ivory to make money. And by the end of his life, in his 80s, George said that the killing of an elephant should be a capital offense. Now, that is a journey of self-discovery and self-awareness. And I want, I want everyone to, to open themselves up to that kind of discussion and the possibility that they also could change their lives and thereby positively change the lives of other people and, and our natural world in the process. The story of George Adamson's a bit more sort of sour than that and the fact that he was eventually murdered while saving a tourist from a poacher. Yeah, pro probably, probably not a poacher as such, more a bandit for whom poaching was just one of the activities that they would participate in. So this bandit was robbing this person, someone who'd arrived uh, at his camp. And the way to get to George's camp was you flew into a little airstrip mm -hmm. and you buzzed the camp in your plane before you landed. That was the signal. Please, could someone come and pick me up? I'm going to be eight kilometers up the road at the airstrip. And um, someone buzzed the camp. And then George heard gunfire and he hopped in his Land Rover, hopped in at the age of 80 something and went towards the airstrip and found this uh, guest being assaulted and attacked on, on the path, on the track, drew his pistol and drove straight at them and was killed in a sp spray of bullets as he drove past. Um, but she was saved and he, I have to say, died in, in a way that he would have felt was fitting because he was there to protect individuals, human or animal. What would you say, speaking of achieving what one's goals are, what would you say is your greatest achievement having founded and created Born Free? And secondly, if you could achieve one more thing today, what would that extra thing be? Okay, Best of luck. Thanks, there David. you go. On the... Good luck with that. <laughs> and spotlight. your time starts now. I'm drinking a coffee. Um, well, I think, it, and it's certainly not down to me, it's down to the whole of sort of Born Free and the work that we've done relentlessly for over 36 years. But I think that I've got, one is a more nebulous achievement, and that is I think we've helped people to think about these issues in a way that they hadn't been thinking about them before. That sure. behavior of the strange behavior of the animal in the zoo, um, the need to conserve uh, endangered species in the wild in a way that's... Um, compassionate to the individuals involved. So we call it compassionate conservation, not just conservation, working with communities who are often bypassed by the whole sort of conservation movement it, with a, a relentlessly focused on the animals and pay little attention to the human beings that share that same environment and have their own needs. So I think that changing of public attitudes is super important. The other one that's more concrete, I would say, is kind of to... One is there are no dolphins in captivity in the UK. The last dolphin area closed in the early 1990s. Right. Yeah. And we took three of the last dolphins from the UK and released them in the wild in the Turks and Caicos Islands of the Caribbean 
thereby hastening the end of that form of dreadful animal abuse and exploitation. And then you say, what would my wish be? I'll describe it like this. Mm-hmm. In 2019, in the UK, the Treasury spent 90 plus billion pounds on education for our kids. It spent 40 billion pounds on the Department of Defense. And it spent three billion pounds on our environment through DEFRA. We have a massive inequity in the way that we prioritize the money that we do have and the way that we spend it on our planet and ourselves. It's a massive inequity. And if I had one target, which is my target, it is to persuade the G20, the OECD, the World Bank, the IMF and others to rebalance the way that we spend our money to make sure that at least at an equal level, we invest in nature because ultimately we all rely on it. We rely on it for the clean air, the water, the the various products that nature produces. And there is a thing called, I don't know if you know this, there's a thing called Earth Overreach Day. And what that means is that throughout the year, we use up as human beings what the earth produces in the year. But the problem is that we're now not using it up over a period of a year because we're using up more than the earth produces. We reach a point which is getting earlier and earlier, whereby we're now eating the capital. We're digging into the capital of the planet, not as it were using the entrance. And it's the 30th of August this year. Do you think that's been affected by COVID? Do you think it's been pushed back a bit? Do you think we've been consuming Yes, I do. Less? I think we've, yeah. we've sort of gone to rushing towards this, this cliff edge of um, self-destruction and planetary destruction and the destruction of nature. And we've sort of screeched to a halt before we've gone over. And it's given us this breathing space. But I really think it's truly a once in a lifetime. It's a, perhaps a once in a planet's lifetime opportunity for us to step back, yeah. reevaluate and reset ourselves in a way that means that we prioritize the protection of the planet just as much as we prioritize the the needs of human beings and we do it in a more equitable way it's something i've been saying for a while now is that it's the failing of governments that make charities like yours essential so i i wish i wish that born free doesn't need to exist within a very short space of time we would love to be out of business sadly i don't see that happening anytime soon indeed um two final questions just to end it on First one, uh, I ask these of everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, If you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, carbon footprint ignored, where would it be? Gosh, there's so many places. But I tell one that that does come to mind, and you hadn't asked me this in advance, so I am making this (laughs) up as we go. Hey, it's it's extensive, Um, it's a knee-jerk, it's always the best answer. Yeah, so in Kenya, as you go north from Mount Kenya towards the Ethiopian border, you enter the most dry and difficult bush country, it's it's desert, full of camels and not much else. And you you go hundreds of kilometers north from the mountain, and then in the distance you see another mountain, not a huge one, but another mountain. And as you get closer, you leave the desert and you enter rainforest, and you climb up the slope of an extinct volcano, and you look down into an extraordinary, it's called Paradise Lake, and it is a, a wonderful lake surrounded by lush forests and literally over the rim of the crater in the distance, you can see back to desert again. It's a complete 
anomaly. You can walk around that edge. There's elephants there. There's buffalo there. It's it's just it's called it's Marsabit. It's in a place called Marsabit. And I have to say, I've been there a couple of times, and I've always just felt that this is the eighth wonder of the world uh-huh. that you can be in this desert, and then suddenly in the small patch of land, maybe it's only a hundred square kilometers, you have a rainforest. Stunning. Um, and final question. Who is your natural history hero? Do you know, I, I have to, and it sounds a bit trite, but I have to say that my dad, um, he's, well, he wasn't a natural, natural history person. He wasn't a naturalist, but he had an almost visceral understanding of what was appropriate, right and wrong, and how nature should be regarded and treated. And he was so firm in his views and so clear in his thinking that even though he passed on in 1994, when we hit a difficult time at Born Free, my mum and I sit down and we say, what would dad have done? Mm-hmm. And that is our guide. That becomes the way we address that issue. And we can hear his voice clearly in our head, giving us the guidance that we need. So he's sort of a mixture between my natural history inspiration, but also just my inspiration. Uh, one little question for me whilst you're here. How do you feel, I mean, you must have seen it a million times, but how do you feel watching your parents being Joy and George in Born Free? Is it a strange one for you to see them inhabiting people that lived a life and learned a lesson to then know the people playing them who have learned the lesson by living the li- pretending to live the life who learned the lesson and then making it corporeal? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Art becomes reality in uh-huh. that sense. Um, and, and sort of reality becomes art becomes reality again. Yeah. And I think that that's... That's fascinating. But, you know, I mean, I come from a, a very widespread acting family. You know, when I see my daughter in something, Lily, I, I am I'm amazed by her acting skills and her ability to tug at the heartstrings and play with the audience's emotions. When I see old films with my mum and dad and Peter Sellers in them and people mm-hmm. like that, I just go, wow, it's just it's just fantastic and extraordinary. Um, but that film, that one film, Born Free, We talked earlier about getting on the train. That's when they got on the train. Amazing. Well, thank you very much indeed. Hugely appreciated. Uh, Thank you, David. Enjoyed it. A massive thank you to Will for taking the time to talk to me. I'm only sorry we were forced to conduct the interview remotely. Hopefully we can rectify that in the future. For more information on the Born Free Foundation, on Will, and to watch their Creature Discomforts video, which really is worth taking the time, you can find a link to everything we've discussed at treesacrowd.fm. We'll be back in a fortnight for something a little more elephantine. But until then, thank you very, very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.